Hey everyone, I'm Andrew Mambo, one of the producers of the show. Before we get into today's episode, we have a favor to ask. Here on the Invisibilia team, we've been talking about how confusing friendships can be, how it's one of the most important types of relationships we have, and yet one of the least clearly defined. So, we want your stories about the spoken and unspoken norms of friendship and how you navigate them. Like, have you unlocked the mysteries of making new friends? We want to know about that. Do you have a story about when you failed at friendship? Let us know. Send us an email or voice memo to invisibiliamail at npr.org, and you might be featured on the show. Okay, now here's the episode. It's technically explicit, but like, my grandma would approve. Madame? Yes, this is Invisibilia. I'm Kia Miyakonotis. And I'm Yoe Shaw. And today we got reporter-producer Abby Wendell in the studio. Hey, Abby. Hey, Abby. Hey, guys. I don't know if you all remember this, but like several months ago, what is time? Um, Yoe, you sent an email to the Invisibilia team and you were like, fun, creative mission, (laughs) y'all. Is it possible to tell a boring story that people will listen through to the end? Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, what? Yoe is asking for a boring story? (laughs) Who is this person? I know, I know. I'm always looking for the opposite of a boring story, not just because of my job. Like, I I think of myself as a narrative toddler when it comes to nonfiction. (laughs) Like, in order to absorb information and facts, I literally need a narrative to, like, drag me through to the end. Mm -hmm. Like, the whole shebang. I need it. Plot twists, turns, compelling characters. What happened next? Mm. Otherwise, I... I will turn it off. Which is like the great irony then of you sending an email asking for a boring story. I mean, I wrote that email. Let's see. Gosh, that was a while ago. I think because, you know, I've been working on this story about how good people are getting at weaponizing narrative, using narrative to advance political agendas and... um People feel defenseless against narrative. Mm. Like they just feel vulnerable to its power. Yeah, it's just like, well, whoever's the best narrative master will win. Nothing we can do, really, except maybe just do it better. And so like a boring story, you you were like looking for a way out of this narrative trap, if you will. Yes. I really, really wonder if it is possible to change people's orientation towards narrative. Mm. Quite the question for a narrative podcast host to be asking, I must say. (laughs) I actually love this question. And I did some digging. And I came across this kind of wild narrative experiment that captivated the country of Norway. It's called Slow TV. And... It's a story that I think might give us Americans some ideas for how to defend ourselves against those who are weaponizing narrative. Hmm. What, what is slow TV? I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised this wasn't on your radar, Yoe. Um, but Norwegian slow TV actually had a moment in the spotlight a couple years back. But for the uninitiated, Norwegian slow TV is like programming of really rather mundane things. And it goes on... For hours and hours, 
sometimes even like days. Like just programming that goes on and on and on or like. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I just like cannot just wrap my head around this. On and on and on. Programs have included a 10 hour long train ride. Toget will få ett litet uppehåll, ett rutemässigt uppehåll här vid Hommelvik station. A five and a half day long boat trip. A night of knitting, followed by a night of chopping and stacking wood. And then 18 hours of salmon fishing. Wow. People standing along a riverbank, mostly men, casting. Huh. Reeling. Kia's shaking her head right now. <laughs> yes, that does feel like an SNL skit. Like, oh, and now we're going to like fish. And you're just like, this sounds horrible. It really does. I, I wouldn't watch that. So, I mean, is it is it supposed to be boring? Uh, no. This is Thomas Hellem, the Norwegian television producer who developed Slow TV. I wouldn't say boring. Of course, we use boring as a compliment mm. because because it's 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 not boring boring it's 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 just that everything is there everything is there now i'm in the middle of a tunnel thomas and i watched part of a train ride together and now you see this little dot <laughs> that tiny tiny little dot of light getting bigger and bigger as as you uh, come closer to the to the other end and at one point, while we were stopped at a station, we watched as someone came along with a squeegee and started wiping down the windows. Yeah, I mean, I guess, does anything dramatic happen? No, for instance, it's very dramatic. We have to, to wash the windows. <laughs> so now you can see we have to wash the glass. <laughs> Now it's not much dramatic happen but that's the that's the life for the most people most people unedited life is not something that we would typically see on TV but slow TV was produced by Norway's public broadcaster which is how they could run hour after hour after hour of programming without any commercial breaks and because they're public, they can take into consideration other things besides just the bottom line. They're considering programming that's educational or innovative, which is actually why the Norwegian TV executives said yes to Thomas's slow TV idea. They discussed what is the most dangerous thing. Is that to, to put up a crazy TV program on a, on a Friday night or is it to say no to a crazy idea from its own employees? Mm. And, and that was this last argument that really got them to, okay, let's them try. In other words, it was like experimentation is as valuable as success. Mm. So, so back in 2009, when they broadcast their first slow TV experiment, which was a seven-hour and 14-minute-long train ride from Bergen, which is kind of in the southwest, to Oslo, which is the capital, they didn't expect anybody to watch. Perhaps a couple of thousands train enthusiastic people in Norway. But more than a million people tuned in. That's like a fifth of Norway's entire population. Huh. How? Yeah. 
What was the marketing budget? Right. That's my question. How did you all market this? Well, lots of people in Norway watch public television. And they did do some, like, promotional stuff. Mm -hmm. And it also wasn't like the Norwegians were just sitting down watching seven hours straight of a train ride. Some say they actually did watch like that. But others, you know, they just kind of had it on in the background. But still, the viewership for that night spiked from like 4%, what they typically got on a Friday night, to 15%. So of the people in Norway watching TV on that Friday night, about one in six were tuned in to a train ride. People heard about it when they were out and had to go home and turn on the telly to watch. And (laughs) yeah, very unexpected success, yes. So they kept going with it. On Twitter, some people said, uh, oh, come on, chicken, seven hours. Why don't you do the coastal ship? We thought, yes, why not? Norway, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the geography, but it's like a very long country and it has like thousands of miles of coastline. And there's these ships that travel up the coast on a route called the Herdegruten. And they stop at a bunch of ports along the way. And the ship route, it travels up the fjords, which are these really beautiful, deep water inlets with like kind of like mountains and cliffs on either side of you. I just looked this up online and it is, it doesn't look real. It's beautiful. Yeah. So they broadcast this boat ride live for five and a half days straight. In real time? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. No commercial breaks, no breaking news. Right. Just, they had 11 cameras on the boat and they sometimes switched between camera shots It was summertime in Norway when they did this. So even at night, the sun was out. And like at first, there really wasn't much to see except just like sea and sky. But then about like 50 hours in, something began to happen. More and more choirs, band, people along the the coast. And thousands of people showing up on every harbor, every mountain, every fjord. Thousands of people lined the docks. They could go into the schedule and see when will the boat be in my place. And they could prepare. (laughs) They were waving flags, carrying posters. Say hello to granny in a different town. Each time they went into port, it was like the Norwegians were competing with each other to see who could throw the biggest party (laughs) at the next port. Wow. Soon, the ship was flanked by a flotilla of smaller boats. One guy was water skiing in a Borat suit. In a mankini. (laughs) The Queen of Norway, Queen Sonia, waved from her yacht. Oh my god. And at one point, they like turned a corner in the fjord. The coastal of Lofoten. You just see this like emerald green mountain kind of rise out of these dark gray waters. And there was this rainbow just perfectly arcing down over the top of this mountain. You can't plan for it. <laughs> you can't make it happen. It just happened. And of course, this was, this was live. So at Twitter, Facebook and everything was kind of boiling with ovations about our beautiful countries and... Did you see that? Did you see the rainbow? They also were playing music along during the broadcast. And 
this is the song they were playing when they saw that rainbow. I, I don't speak Norwegian, but it just sounds like a love song to this shipping route. So this like absurd idea turned into this collective experience on social media, in person, gathered around the television. Thomas said more than half of Norway tuned in at some point. And towards the end of the cruise, the channel broke the record for the largest audience ever. It beated everything. It beated big sports events and everything that I've been on that channel before. So all-time high was a, a cruise ship sailing into a small harbor in northern Norway. Hmm. Norway, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? It's ridiculous. It's hilarious. But I also found it intriguing. Like, what is it about slow TV that was able to engage so many people? And so I decided to go deeper. A couple of months ago, I started watching Norwegian slow TV like a lot of Norwegian slow TV and talking with people about Norwegian slow TV and also like watching Norwegian slow TV with the people that I was talking to. Wait, how many interviews did you do? Dozens. I talked to dozens of people. You're in too deep, Abby. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was like pretty deep into the pandemic, right? So I had plenty of time to just kind of ride the Norwegian slow TV train. And I really enjoyed calling up people, anybody who would talk to me and and getting them to watch slow TV with me and talk about it. Um, Okay, mom. I did it with family. I did it with friends. Are you going to make me watch fire? American television producers, Norwegian television producers. I talked to TV critics. Do you want to start at the beginning? Yeah, of course. Experts on the business of television, media theorists, literary theorists. We're somewhere in northern Norway. Narratologists, sports historians. There were a couple of psychologists, some psychoanalysts, a neuroscientist. I think you are officially the queen of Mm -hmm. (laughs) over-reporting. All right. Slow TV. Slow TV? Watch the start here. I'm watching a man in a fish hat reel in his line. I always want to watch reindeer. Wait, hold up. (laughs) This is hour 11. How do I get to number three? 54. (laughs) He's, He's still reeling. See, I'm already, my American impatience is showing. How am I supposed to feel? Several of the Americans I talked with had never seen or heard of Norwegian slow TV, but they told me they enjoyed other slow media experiences, primarily on the internet. There were a couple of street cam devotees. There was one guy who told me he watches screensavers. And you know how you can do uh, the ambiance sort of screensaver. You can pick different scenery as the background. I've been known to go put that on, especially like the winterscapes and just watch as they go through their slideshow. His kids are a little frustrated with him about that. Anyway, I, I, I think that there's something to it. Like, I think that there's something about slow TV that could potentially help us break out of that possession by plot and unglue us from the twists and, and turns of the narrative. But before we get to my incredible findings, what do you think? Would you guys be down to watch some slow TV with me? How long? I know that's my question is how long 
do we have to do it for? Um, so 12 hours? Are you set? Are you comfy? <laughs> <laughs> I got 10 minutes for you. All right. I guess I'll take what I can get. But first, a break. Because even though we're a national public radio, we still have sponsorship messages. Of course. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Quicksilver Card. With the Capital One Quicksilver Card, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. With Quicksilver, there's no limit to how much cash back you can earn. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. Maddie Safaya here, host of Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. Listen for new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines all in about 10 minutes every weekday. It's a great addition to your daily listening, whether you're a science nerd or, you know, just a little science curious. Subscribe now to Shortwave from NPR. Okay, so what are the options? we got a train journey, the coastal voyage. On the Herdigruten. Knitting is pretty funny to me. I mean, this train journey north of the Arctic Circle is calling me, I'm going to be honest. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. So we're seeing the train leave what is presumably a stop, maybe the train yard, right? I think we're at the beginning, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like we're looking out the window at the very front. Do you want to describe for the listeners what we're seeing? Um, everything's very gray. It's a gloomy, cloudy day. There's a highway next to us. There's a lot of concrete buildings. Yeah. We're in like an industrial situation. Mm-hmm. We're passing another train. That's exciting. It's red. How you doing over there, Yoe? How many minutes in are we? I'm not excited (laughs) yet. I've not gotten a jolt of, like, narrative pleasure just yet. Yoe is turning it off. I'm still here, though. (laughs) It looks like the train is moving from like in a city to like outside of it so like now we're in a residential area whenever you look at a tv program there's there's a producer uh, or somebody behind who have picked out the favorite parts for you and in slow tv everything is there the boring parts and the interesting parts but just as in real life you you have to find out yourself what's boring and what's interesting for me. Picking up speed, lots of greenery. Mm-hmm. More space between houses. Yes, now it feels like we're definitely in the countryside. Oh, this is pretty. Oh, so now we're going through some sort of miniature canyon? What is this? I don't mm-hmm. even know where we are, but there's like high rock and trees around us, and it was like a little oh. pinch point, and now we're out into a beautiful little lakeside town yeah we're like right up on the water which is 
beautiful. You can see houses dotting the hills in the background. Okay, well, that gave me some pleasure. Mm. Like an unexpected shot of natural wonder. It's not watching paint dry. It's not art. This is no uh, meditation or something put together to get you to sleep. Slow TV for me is, is different. It's, it's, it's storytelling. Windshield wipers are going, which is adding a new element. So it's blurry, the view. We're rounding a curve. And they did like a, a camera move, like perspective move, so that you could see the water to the left. Mountains in the distance. I'm getting like I've just broken up with somebody and I'm listening to like mm. listening to music with my earbuds and I'm on the train and I'm feeling feelings I just need to like be for a while and I need to like listen to music that makes me cry and I just want to look out the window One of the things that I think that happens if you watch it for a long time is that you make your own associative connections and you find yourself telling some minimal kind of story. This is Josh Cohen. He's a psychoanalyst and a professor of literary theory at Goldsmiths University of London. So to get technical for a minute, in literary theory circles, they don't just think something either is or isn't a story. For instance, narratologists like Dan Irving put narrative on a gradient or a spectrum. Down at the weak narrativity end, you have things like, like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, a play in which two people wait for a person named Godot. They talk while they wait. Not much else happens. And then, like up at the high end, you've got things like the Ferrante novels and Disney movies. We're really used to stories like that, with high narrativity. They have plot, action, conflict, resolution, characters we care about. And Josh says it's that story stuff that sort of pulls us along for the narrative ride. Traditional forms of narrative keep you locked into what they want to tell you and carry you along with their agenda. Weak narratives, on the other hand, are like missing some or maybe even most of that story stuff. And without it, we as the readers and viewers just have a lot more agency. What a weak narrative does is it hands your mind back to you. For Josh, there's something contrarian, maybe even a little subversive about this weak style of storytelling. I sort of think about the way in a spare moment with nothing in particular to do. People distractedly click the lock code on their phone 
and then they stare at it and then they don't quite know why they've done what they've done. They don't quite know what they're looking at their phone for. They just want a point of orientation, a point of focus. It, slow TV might be a kind of apprenticeship in, in looking without that kind of immediate focus, in saying, OK, what, what would it be like to look ahead and ask myself what it is I'm interested in rather than have it assumed for me, have it fed to me? The word apprenticeship, yeah. I love that. I do too, yeah. Watching that, I did feel like I was in the place. Mm-hmm. It like puts you inside of yourself in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I just want to make note of the fact that like our conversation is totally different after watching that. <laughs> like we're all just like, yeah, man, like, yeah. It's like a resetting the metronome. Yeah. Or like our internal metronomes or something. Yeah. Like this exists online, though. Mm. Yeah. I know you don't go on the www dot very often, but um, yes, this was actually something that came up a lot when I talked to people. They were they were like, there's Twitch. You can watch other people play video games. Isn't that slow TV? Mm-hmm. Or like, what about YouTube is full of weak narrative experiences. There's like whole channels where you can just turn on thunderstorms or like unboxing videos. People literally unpacking things from boxes. Um, ASMR. (laughs) Speaking of which, there's also been like a recent rise in slow audio, slower than NPR already is. BBC has a podcast called Slow Radio, and there's John Allen's walking podcast, which is just recordings of him walking places. There's the Yule Log, too. Um, And for a while, Americans could even stream Norwegian slow TV on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And and yes, Americans can and do encounter weak narrativity in all of these ways. But I talked to this one guy, a Norwegian guy, who really, like, challenged the idea that those experiences are the same as what the Norwegians experienced by watching this together as a country on television. There's just something about that particular weak narrative experience that has additional things to offer. The viewers have to have a sense of uh, belonging for the thing to really work. This is Espen. I'm Espen Ytterberg. I'm a professor of media studies at the uh, University of Oslo. And Espen told me that when he first came across Slow TV, he was totally confused. But then he found himself really getting drawn in. And when they broadcast the coastal voyage, the Hurdegruten, for five and a half days, he literally sat watching it for hours and hours. Tromso Shervoy. This one? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Espen and I rewatched part of that boat trip together, and it really helped me see Norwegian slow TV through the eyes of a Norwegian. For me, the thrill here is, is kind of obvious. It's Maybe I know somebody in that crowd. And I've been on that quay, and I've also been on the coastal steamer lots of times. 
Espen grew up in a small coastal town in northern Norway, and the Hurdegruten was his connection to the rest of the country. It was one of the main ways he visited friends, family, traveled anywhere. So when he watched the trip on television, the thoughts and stories that stirred inside of Espen's head, you know, they weren't made up or random. They weren't like daydreams. They were stories from his own life coming back to him. It's one of these gray days that we're watching on the screen. I mean, most of the days in Tromsø, let's face it, are gray days. Uh, but, you know, there's any number of greys, and uh, grey is <laughs> beautiful. As Esben and I watched the boat gliding through the grey, in the distance, there was a bridge. One of my uh, great experiences as a child, I stood at the top there with my father, and he pointed down, and uh, there were two uh, whale sharks. They're sharks, but they're large as whales. Uh, just just under the bridge, sort of slowly floating by. Sorry, I'm dig- I'm digressing. No, 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 that's okay. It does that to you, doesn't it? Yes, that, that's exactly it. But Espen explained that he didn't just reflect on his own memories while he watched. The fact that this was broadcast on a main channel, live, helped foster a sense of collectivity. And he found himself reflecting on Norway, too. Like, what it means to be Norwegian. It's the connection, I think, it it allows between me and us. What is it that we have together? Uh, What is this thing that's supposed to be ours? So you you were asking me what the, the point of the genre is. Maybe that's one point of the genre to, uh, uh, you know, help, help us things, think about these kinds of things. And not solely in like a nostalgic, misty-eyed way either. As Espen and I talked, the ship chugged along in the background, and at one point, something caught his attention. A bunch of Norwegians standing along the dock, waving the Norwegian flag. I'm not so happy with this, this flag waving. Espen explained that he's sensitive to anything overtly nationalistic. According to him and some other Norwegian folks I talked to, Norwegian nationalism is like maybe a little bit gentler than in some other parts of the world. But, you know, recently Norway's seen an increase in immigration and xenophobia. Espen and I, we were talking not too long after January 6th, the capital insurrection. So when that topic, nationalism, like floated up to the surface, my mind went to some pretty dark places. There's a part of me that worries that if you did have, if you did have something like this in America right now, that it would be nationalistic, that it could become nationalistic in a violent way. Yeah, of co- yes, of course. Uh... Any kind of social collectivity can be co-opted by dangerous forces. Uh, it's an inherent danger almost. Mm. Um, yeah, I think this is a, a even a question in America, like who is nationalism for? Because in a lot of ways, nationalism in America feels yeah. inherently like racist in a lot of ways because of the history and the way it's the uneven experience of feeling a sense of pride of where you're from. Mm -hmm. Now, the program we were watching, you know, it wasn't directly engaging any of these questions. It wasn't avoiding them either. They were just kind of like 
bobbing out there for us to pick up and engage if and how we wanted. That's the ambient TV phenomenon, to enter a space where the ambience makes it possible for you to think, to ruminate, to dwell, um, almost kind of social meditation that's enormously valuable. So this is Fred Turner. He's a media historian and a professor of communication at Stanford who's actually researched this kind of ambient media and its relationship to democracy. Fred explained that slow TV's style of storytelling, its weak narrativity, might actually cut against the threat of violent nationalism. Because rather than handing people a script about their country and their place in it, ambient media engages people in daydreaming and debating for themselves questions like, who is nationalism for? What is this thing we call ours? To help me get my mind wrapped around this, Fred pointed to a moment in America's past when we got a taste of this. Have you ever seen the video of Kennedy's funeral train? Uh, no. Robert Kennedy, that is. Go watch that. It'll blow your mind. It's a lot like the um, Norwegian video. You just, you're on a train... <laughs> And you're traveling through through towns where Americans of all colors and 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 um, income levels are waving to the train in sadness or saluting, taking their hats off. There's no narrative there. Just Kennedy died, and we're going to mourn together on this train as it moves through the people. That's a beautiful democratic vision. What is democratic about that? So what, what's democratic about it as a media experience is that you're not being told what to do you're being offered a chance to participate in an experience. You don't have to do it one way or another. You don't have to laugh at the joke. There's no, there's no canned laughter telling you, now's the time you giggle. There's just the sounds and the air and the people waving. And you can decide how you feel. You might feel really sad because you liked Kennedy. You might feel really angry because you dislike Kennedy and now all these people are celebrating him. You might fixate on somebody's funny clothes on the side of the track and just go, wow, that person looks really strange. There's so much in the image. You can see so much and decide what you want to do with it. So does ambient media give you an opportunity to sort of exercise some kind of democratic muscle, if you will? It gives you the chance to exercise a couple of democratic muscles. The first is the democratic muscle of slowing down and ruminating and reasoning a little bit. The second democratic muscle is seeing things around you and seeing yourself among those things as one of those things, as a citizen equal to others, not as someone above or below, not as someone in competition with, not as someone who has to take a stand on a fault line, but as someone who belongs to a whole. As I was listening to Fred talk, I couldn't help but feel like damn, I feel like America could use a space to collectively reflect like that right now. You know? Maybe what we need is some authentic, American-made, American-broadcast slow TV. Slow TV! Look, it just set off, and there we are, back to peace. Yes. Really? A hundred percent. The <laughs> threats of American civil war <laughs> will be absolved. We'll just be bored to death. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It seems useful. I grant you that. But I don't know, like, how many of the, like, how far it would get in solving the problems, all the many problems that we have today. I'm I'm not 
proposing slow TV as like a real like this is the key this is the key. Oh, that was a rhetorical question. Yeah. And I mean, even Fred said these kind of ambient media experiences are just one element. You've also got to have actual physical spaces, places like libraries, hospitals, schools, where me and us can interact with each other and work together on things. But slow TV might give us a chance to reflect on America in a way that's not fueled by sensationalism and divisiveness. And to that, Fred says, you know, more power to it. And for me, personally, I mean, I really think experimentation is as valuable as success. Like, crazy insurrection times might call for some really out-of-the-box measures. So, like, why not just give slow TV a try? Do you think we have it in us as Americans? Well, but you guys just sat and watched some of it with me. Like, what do you, I mean, what do you think? Like, do you think Americans would? I'm very skeptical. I'm slightly hopeful. I think people are open, you know, some people. So I did look into that. Mm. And I will tell you, after the break, Mm. the narrative tension. This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wireless. Move to Total Wireless and get incredible devices on America's best network now with 5G. Connect four devices for just $25 per device per month. Total Wireless. Do amazing. Visit TotalWireless.com slash coverage slash check for more detailed coverage info. A month equals 30 days. Terms and conditions at TotalWireless.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from 3M. Applying science to help improve lives. 3M believes that science is key to finding solutions for a more sustainable world. That's why 3M scientists are working on a variety of innovations and embedding sustainability into every new product, like microscopic glass bubbles that reduce weight and help extend battery life in electric vehicles. They have also integrated post-consumer recycled content and renewable materials into household items like Scotch-Brite sponges and Post-it notes. And earlier this year, 3M announced they expect to invest approximately $1 billion over the next 20 years, achieve carbon neutrality by 2050, and reduce water use in their manufacturing operations by 25% in 2030. To learn more about how 3M is helping to build a more sustainable world, visit 3M.com sustainability. So could Americans get down with slow TV? Could we have an appetite for it? Eric Deggins, television critic for NPR, he's kind of in your camp, yo eh? I don't see any indication in the consumer behavior that I'm watching that people have this yearning for three hours of train tracks winding in front of them. What we're seeing in media is consumers wanting uh, media that is more complex and involved, you know, um, shows that are on like HBO Max and Netflix and, you know, Apple TV Plus and all these new streamers. But even if the trend is towards catchier and catchier storytelling with complex plots and fast edits that can make it hard to look away, causing some people to worry that it's addictive, a couple of psychologists I talked with challenged that. Here's John Eastwood, a psychology professor at York University in Toronto. You know, there's lots of claims about 
about the media destroying our attention spans and all that kind of thing. When you look a little deeper, I, I just think these are hard claims to make. I think a lot of them resonate with us intuitively. They, they seem plausible, um, but I'm not aware of uh, research that gets at exactly that question. I also talked with Jeff Sachs, a professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. And he feels like all of the concern about the media and our attention has almost risen to the level of a moral panic. Lots of people are articulating this view that things like rapid editing in video and on radio and TV news are robbing us of the ability to concentrate for extended periods of time and to appreciate more extended structures, including narrative structures. I think the evidence for this view is really weak. I just don't think there's any reason to think that that's a thing. That is interesting because I feel like that is a kind of unchallenged belief now Mm. that like the media is warping our attention spans and it's doing something really like bad to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. According to Eastwood and Zach's, there just isn't enough evidence to really support that. So to the question of, you know, could Americans have an appetite for slow TV, there's no reason to assume that we couldn't get down with it, which is, you know, like a little dose of optimism, Kia. I believe in it. If it weren't for that bottom line. Broadcasters are like, wait a minute, where the commercials go where I pay for the program? Oof. I know. Just like pop that little bubble of hope. Yeah, gosh. So this is Eric Schatz, an Emmy award-winning TV producer. He's done shows like Kids Say the Darndest Things, various investigative and true crime series for places like the History Channel and Discovery, and someday, hopefully, American Slow TV. Eric is a true believer. He's the only person ever to option the Norwegian's idea. In other words, he paid money for it. (laughs) And for several years now, he's been attempting to bring the concept to America in its pure Nordic form. Broadcast it live, no commercial breaks. But whenever Eric has taken this idea to American TV executives, he gets a very, very different response from what Thomas got in Norway. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive. I'm not going to have any narrative or anything. I'm just going to drive to San Francisco for 10 hours live. That's the pitch. (laughs) You think that guy's going to go, I'll take it. (laughs) It's not a chance. Zero people. Zero. I have a couple people. One passed away and the others got fired. I'm on a roll. No, experimentation is as valuable as success. Because television in America is an industry. It has to make money. Sure, we have PBS, but public broadcasting in America isn't as popular as it is in Norway. So if you want to put slow TV in front of lots of Americans, you'd want to go commercial. And Eric has brainstormed ways to try to do this. One of his pitches was to air a live broadcast of a drive from L.A. to San Francisco. And when the commercial question inevitably came up, Eric suggested... How about we do Coca-Cola as a sponsor, and as we're driving, we pass a Coca-Cola truck for 30 seconds. We just track the truck. Or you pass a billboard. There are things that you put into the path of what it is that you integrate it seamlessly. Eric intended to broadcast that trip live, 
probably around Thanksgiving or like the 4th of July, when Americans might be inclined to gather together and watch. And he and his team actually made it far enough into the production to film a trial run. But we did the test and all the people that did this got fired. Fired because they liked this idea and were working on this idea or unrelated? I I don't think it was related at all, but I can understand it if it did. (laughs) So it's an uphill battle. But Eric keeps trying, and I really do hope he makes it happen one day. Um, He and I, we didn't agree on a lot of things. Like his idea of driving across part of California. Sure, it could be a beautiful meditation on our landscape. Kind of like a visual version of Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. But not everybody hears that song or sees America's landscape the same way, right? Here's Fred Turner, the media historian again. The idea of driving across the American landscape um, inside a vehicle and marveling and feeling like it was ours, that's pretty hard in a place where just 150 years ago, European settlers wiped out, you know, several million Native Americans where slavery occurred. You know, those kinds of things make that celebration of the land very difficult. This show is not about that. It's not about what's right or wrong with our country. Mm -hmm. It's not the show for that. You Mm -hmm. go go to watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News if you want to fight about that. I kept pressing the point, what you film is a political decision. Eric pressed back. Like, just chill out and watch. Take it in. Calm down. Turn down the temperature. Look at this fucking zen moment in the middle of nothing. I said that was, you know, a privileged perspective to take. It has nothing to do with that. Come back but, out superficial for a minute. <laughs> come back to come back to join me in superficial. Okay? No, no, I'm not going to. Like I think I think <laughs> I think in like As I, we I, argued I, round and round, Eric kept circling back to one point I couldn't dispute. There's just something about slow TV that's different. You could talk about you could be shallow, you could be deep, you could be deep and shallow. Fine. But where else could you do that? Mm. Where you're not bombarded by a barrage of commercials and texts and things and phones ringing and all the stuff that goes with it. Now you might not like it. That's a different argument. But uniqueness? Yeah, I think it's unique. So I, I know getting American slow TV broadcast live on a main channel in America is highly unrealistic. But... Just for a minute, like, think about what it would mean about America if we did that. It would mean that either we funded public media enough to pull something like this off, or a commercial channel decided, fine, let's de-emphasize commercials for seven hours, five and a half days, whatever. It would mean media executives in the States decided that giving Americans a space to collectively reflect on the connection between me and us was worth risking their bottom line. Mm. And I think it is worth the risk. (laughs) I think some billionaires should step up and make it happen. Or better yet, the government should fully fund public media, you know? Yeah. Is this all a commercial for NPR? (laughs) Are we asking for money at some point during this story? Dude, my goal this season, by the way, was to do a story that was not earnest. And, like, here I am turning it into a pledge drive. Yeah, that's what it's up. That's where you're you're on your, like, pledge drive soapbox yes, right now. Yeah, yeah. For slow TV, uh, which no 
TV execs have said yes to <laughs> and might never actually materialize. <laughs> uh, but, like, we have a platform. Be the change you want to see, Abby. <laughs> Be the- <laughs> yes, slow radio. <laughs> Are you up for it? I think, like, the bigger question is, are you up for it, Yoe? <laughs> well, here, here's the gauntlet I'm throwing for you, because this started with an email that I sent and that you responded to, and you went down mm-hmm. this path. So the gauntlet is, can you make slow radio that even I, Yoe Shaw, will listen to the end, all the way to the end? It's a massive challenge, for the record. It's true. mm Will I take on this challenge? You know, it's the same way I feel about slow TV. Why not? Abby, what are you thinking about making? For my slow radio experiment? Mm-hmm. I have some ideas. Stay tuned. Today's episode was produced by Abby Wendell. Fact-checking by Hillary McClellan and Susie Cummins. Special thanks to Ola Hederman, Dan Irving, Yael Levine, Julia Lida, Amanda Lotz, Tim Previtt, Betsy Levy-Pollock, Roald Puck, and Gwyn Williams for helping us understand the nuances of slow TV. This episode had additional help from David Goodhertz, Carolyn McCusker, Nina Patak, Jennifer Schmidt, Luis Treas, and Justine Yan. And thank you to Tia Kemp for loosening us up. Invisibilia is produced by me, Andrew Mambo, Abby Wendell, Kia Miyakanatis, and Yowei Shah. This episode was mastered by our technical director, Andy Huther. Our podcast manager is Liana Sinstrom. Our supervising senior producer is Nicole Beamstabor. Neil Carruth and Steve Nelson are our senior directors of programming. And our senior vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. And a special shout-out to our supervising senior editor, Deborah George. She'll be leaving us soon, and we're so very grateful to her careful steering of our stories, her clarity of thought and prose, her spine of steel, and her one-liners that always make us smile. So here's a challenge for some of our more outgoing listeners. As you're hearing this, please say out loud with me, thank you, Deborah. It's a ridiculous long shot, but could you imagine if she was walking past you right now or sitting next to you in a cafe and she heard you say that? It would be cool. But you could also freak out a random Deborah, so no pressure. In any case, we will miss you, Deb. Additional thanks to NRK for allowing us to use the sounds of several of their slow TV programs. Music for this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Connor Moore from Seymour Sounds, Solixis, Stefan Anthony Beasley, William Cashin, Tom Pyle and Running Dog Music, and Peels by arrangement with Bank Robber Music. And the love song to the shipping route that you heard was a live recording of Herte Grüten. Music by Peter Hendrickson, lyrics by Kari Bremnes, arrangements by Bengt Hansen. Theme music by Infinity Knives. To see an original illustration for this episode by Chair Wang, visit npr.org invisibilia, where you'll also find a link to watch all the Norwegian slow TV your heart desires for free. One last thing. We want to give a special shout out to our rock star intern for this season, Carolyn McCusker, who is amazing at sound design, reporting, really just like everything. And she was an inspiration behind all the listener sounds we've been using in the credits this season. 
Here she is with another sound, and this one stumped the entire team. Hello, guys. Hey. Hi, Carolyn. So I was going through our inbox, and I found this sound that one of our listeners sent us that kind of blew my mind. Um, mm. It was just really cool to me, really <laughs> unexpected, um, and it has a little bit of a story behind it. So I wanted to play a game with you guys to see if you could listen to the sound and guess what it is. I feel like we need, like, game show music. (laughs) Name that noise. Welcome. (laughs) I feel like if anybody should be able to get this, it would be a group of audio professionals (laughs) like yourself. No pressure, right? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm going to put you to the test. Oh, it's super melodic. This is amazing. What's that like rattling sound underneath? It's like something striking something. Yeah. Mm. Uh, coconut shells. <laughs> a band warm up? I have a fantasy in my mind. This is just my fantasy where someone, we're in a tropical environment and someone has like an ice cream cart that they're wheeling. And so that's why it has like a musical sound and like it's drawing people to them. But it has an unusual ice cream cart, like tropical vibes. That's my wish. That's what I made up. (laughs) I love that picture. I'm picturing tropical too. Mm. And I'm picturing a banana daiquiri though. Ooh, <laughs> Deb. That's on vacation. I like that one. I think all of our minds are in the same place. <laughs> My question, the thing that I'm, I feel like the obvious choice would be that it is like actually like a musical group that is just playing music. Um, but I feel like that's the obvious choice. And you said that it blew your mind. So it is not that. Mm. It's like some other thing that it's surprising that it sounds so musical, that it sounds like almost like a song. Mm-hmm. I yeah. will confirm maybe as your first hint, this mm-hmm. is not instruments or it's not something mm-hmm. that would traditionally be considered to be an instrument. Mm. Okay. 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 So we're getting warmer. Well, now I'm thinking it has something to do with maybe like a weaving machine or something mm. that like has mm. lots of different elements. Mm. Could it be incorporating something like elastic, like a rubber band or like a thread or something like that? So I'm, I'm thinking in terms of machines right now. Mm. That's a very clever guess. Do you want one more clue before I tell you what it is? Yes. Yeah, please. What you're listening to is the sound of somebody interacting with a common everyday thing in a Hmm. way that you wouldn't expect. Oh. Hmm. Is it a hollowed out tree trunk? Ooh, that's a good guess. And then what do you think the noises are? Uh, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far. Like a telephone pole? I don't know. Somebody playing music on a clothesline? Um... Are you stumped? I'm proper stumped. Okay. So the listener who sent this is Megan Mehta, and she actually sent a picture along with it. So I'm going to do the grand reveal by showing you all the picture at the same time. You ready? Ready. So ready. Okay. Three, 
two, one. Oh! Wow. Oh, oh. What is that? I'm looking at it. <laughs> so our listener, Megan Mento, was on a walk with her friend, Jonathan Vaki, and they found this tree that's fallen apart into these two halves, like split down the middle, mm-hmm. but there are these fibers of wood, like strips of wood stretching between the two mm-hmm. halves. And they found out that when you pluck on the strips of wood, it sounds like that. That is a real live note, man. What a great tree. I know, and where's the shaker coming from? There's it's like a the whole... reverb on the little branches of like you striking it. Yeah, it's like a, a whole ensemble. Like so many different instruments contained in one instrument. Mm-hmm. Somebody sign that tree. So you kind of do have to see it to get it. So if anybody listening to this wants to see a picture of this magical music tree, um, we'll send it out in our newsletter. So you could subscribe at npr.org slash Invisibilia newsletter to see what we're looking at right now. I'll take this moment to say thank you so much, Megan, for sending this really cool sound to us. And if anybody else listening has a sound that they'd like to send to us, we'd love to hear it and maybe use it in the podcast. So send your sound recordings to invisibiliamail at npr.org. Katie Craig based on the tree that this is leaning on. Whoa. 